Because the arts enrich, transform, unite, and strengthen us through shared understanding and expression. Because the arts are magical and powerful, they increase compassion and understanding to make change, stimulate imagination, and nourish happiness. Because, because art has, has the power to change the world. Today on Because Radio, award-winning playwright Ian Ross joins us to discuss Perry Theatre Exchange's upcoming production of his play, The Third Color. Neurosurgeon scientist Dr. Dimitri Serlaitis joins us to talk about his presentation at Music and the Mind and the effects that music has on our brains. This week's Winnipeg Impact Makers, Janine Tugat and Darcy Adam, work to increase access to education in holistic and expressive arts therapy through a game with archetypes. And we'll have highlights from this week's Because and Effect with Tara Whistle from the Royal Winnipeg Ballet. All this and more on Because Radio. Hello and welcome to Because Radio, episode number 23. My name is Robert Zirk. And I'm Sonny Permolo. It's now officially autumn. It's uh, unmistakably fall, although sometimes it seemed like summer's coming back for a day or two and then back again to fall weather. Yeah, you know what, though? I really love this weather. It just feels super fresh to me. It is nice that at least sometimes the temperatures seem a little bit more comfortable than uh, than some of the temperatures we've experienced in the summer. Absolutely. And my partner definitely loves the season for the, all the pumpkin spice everywhere. We have a great show lined up for you today. Later on in the show, I'll be speaking with neurosurgeon scientist Dr. Dimitri Serlaitis. He recently presented at a presentation called Music and the Mind. So we had a very interesting chat, and that'll be coming up later on in the show. But to start things off, today's foundation feature focuses on arts, culture, and heritage. Producer Jeremy Morant spoke with local playwright Ian Ross about his upcoming play at Prairie Theatre Exchange called The Third Color. We'll also hear from Ian about his career, his thoughts on Indigenous and non-Indigenous relations in Canada, and how his writing asks questions that need to be asked. This week's foundation feature on Because Radio focuses on arts, culture, and heritage. You're listening to Because Radio. I'm here with Ian Ross. Ian is a Winnipeg-based playwright who won the 1997 Governor General's Award for English Drama for his production, Farewell, which premiered at uh, Prairie Theatre Exchange, which is actually where his upcoming play, The Third Color, will be premiering as well next month. Ian, thank you so much for talking to me. No worries. Thanks for having me. Let's start off uh, nice and general about The Third Color itself. Can you tell us what it's about? Well, um, I always used to joke, but there's some seriousness in it that you know, if I thought I had answers, I would have become a politician. But instead, I have questions. So I became a playwright. And in my background, my experience, that's what I think a play should do is ask a question. So what I'm seeing happening among Indigenous peoples in the country right now, and it's been building over decades, um, is there seems to be a real movement towards independence. And because Indigenous peoples have a unique position within Canada that, in my opinion, precedes whatever is going on in Quebec, right? 
when there was that debate at the time too, like Quebec wanted to separate, and then some separatists said, well, wait a minute, what about the indigenous people? They were here before us. Uh, so anyways, the question I ask in this play is related to that idea of do we as, an, as indigenous people continue to try to build this nation, or do we step out of it and go our own way? And I'm seeing both happening right now. So that's the question the play, uh, that's one of the questions the play asks. Let's dive deeper into where the seed of that question came from. What really, what's at the heart of that question for you? Probably where some of this play started was I was working in Stratford a number of years ago and um, worked with this wonderful actor named Leon Pownell, who's since passed away. But Leon used to talk about how he and Robertson Davies used to get into these arguments about uh, Canada and what is Canada. And you always heard about the two solitudes and all this other stuff. And they would debate. And what they would debate about was, in their opinions, Canada didn't have any mythology. Um, and that, hence, it's always sort of had this identity crisis, right? Whereas if you look to our neighbors to the south, they're steeped in mythology about their own country, their leaders, like all kinds of things. Like, you're probably a little too young, but if you ask Canadians of a certain age, you know, do you know a story about a president cutting down a cherry tree? And do you know that yeah. story? Who was it? George Washington. And what was the lesson behind it? His father asked him, who cut down my tree? George, was it you? Father, I cannot tell a lie. It was me. Oh, God. Imagine if politicians could not tell a lie these days, right? Anyways, he said that. And we go, oh, yes, George, oh, George Washington, blah, blah, blah. But we as Canadians, we know that mythology. It's not our mythology. Then if I ask people, well, what's the mythology around Sir Johnny MacDonald? People might say, well, I heard he was a drunk, <laughs> which maybe is kind of fitting for Canadians. Um, I don't know. We love beer, which is okay. Anyways, uh, they would argue that. And then when I listened and talked with Leon about it, I realized, you know what? In my opinion, Canada is also steeped in mythology, but it's indigenous mythology. And the reason why Canada suffers from an identity crisis is because it doesn't embrace its mythology, which is the mythology of the people I come from. Because look at this place we're in right now, this beautiful city. It's named Winnipeg. You know where that name comes from. Muddy Waters. Which is a Cree word. Manitoba, the place where the spirit speaks, spirit lives, an Ojibwe word. Canada, a Huron word. Like, it's everywhere, right? And Canada, do you know why our flag is uh, red and white? And that flag was actually unveiled in Winnipeg for the first time in 1963, I believe, by Lester B. Pearson at the um, Legion in St. Vital. And there was almost a riot. People hated it so much, right? Um, but it's red and white to represent the two founding nations of Canada, those two colors, red for the English, white for the French. And so my play is called The Third Color. So I'm not giving anything away, I hope, but maybe I am. Where does, where does The Third Color, where does it fit uh, in the tapestry of the rest of your work? It's um, interesting because it's, I feel it's a, a play, it's, it's a play when I, I, the production that's happening right now being um, directed by Tom Morgan Jones, the artistic director of PTE, with two wonderful actors, Tracy and, and Kathleen. And um, 
it's more of an absurdist kind of abstract piece rather than something where you might expect it to be more of a naturalistic kind of a play. When I first started to write plays in theater, I, I focused on naturalism because I felt that was the challenge. It was like I wanted to write a play set in a natural setting where people would actually suspend their disbelief. Like, And I thought, if I can write a play well in that form, then I can start to move into trying other things and see, well, maybe I'll get a bit more absurd, a bit more abstract. So that's kind of where this play lands. And uh, But I'd like to think that there's enough there that people will still be able to come away from it, maybe asking questions of themselves or getting insight into something that they never thought of that way before because uh, if we want to change the world and a lot of good people want to change the world for the better the only way I've found that you're going to do that is if you gain empathy you have to gain understanding about other peoples other cultures other ways of thinking whatever right once you become empathetic everything can change but if you stay in your thought process, you don't want to change, you want to be this way, no, that's wrong, no, I'll never accept that, then fine, be intolerant. You know, see how far you get in light. See, see how many people like you, you know, if you want to be liked. But it's not about that. It's about, to me, like, what kind of world are we going to leave for? future generations for kids it, it's clear just by looking at your work that having an indigenous lens and voice is integral at the core of your writing obviously that's an important thing obviously we need that but in your words can you explain to us why you find that so important well you know in in hamlet polonius says uh, to thine own self be true when you know he's giving advice to his son who's heading off to i believe it's london um but that was, I was very lucky in that uh, I learned that, to thine own self be true. And that means, so the art that I express, because I'm an Indigenous man, uh, that's the lens I grew up in. But I also see that that perspective can add value and solutions to Canada in a way that maybe the way things are going now isn't necessarily the best way. Uh, again, an empathetic point of view, uh, point of view of non-judgment, because traditionally uh, the nations I belong to, that's what they practiced, was non-judgment. Don't judge people or what they do or how they behave. It doesn't mean you let them get away with things, but it's not your place to, you know, cluck your teeth and tut-tut and like, oh, I'm not going to talk to you because you're bad. And that's the other thing I find fascinating is that we say, oh, that person is bad. We don't like that person. But if you really got to know them, you'd kind of go, well, they're actually a person. I might not agree with them, and maybe they do stupid or foolish things, but they're still a person, right? So being Indigenous, uh, I'm just very lucky because that's who God made me. That's how I ended up. And, you know, if I happened to be Jewish, I would be doing the same thing. If I was from Nairobi, I'd be doing the same thing, right? So... Um, on another level, though, I think it's important for those Indigenous kids and youth who might think, well, you know, maybe I could be a writer. If they can see that I did it, because I grew up in poverty, um, that, yeah, maybe I can do it too. Like, that's what I find kind of exciting, if, is if I can 
help help them fulfill their dream and live their dream, right? How did you hone that craft and that skill of writing over time? Just by doing it, you know? It's like it's like anything. When you start out, you suck. Uh, I also had an aptitude for it. Like, I really enjoyed writing. I liked writing a lot. Um, I did some acting, too, but that's not, you know, what I really want to do. I really want to write because uh, I'll tell you a quick story. One day when I came into class in university, my professor got up and he was really sad and he started telling this story about his life, but it was almost like he wasn't talking to us. And he said, you know, there comes a time when you look back on your life and you say, what do I have to give to my children or my grandchildren? What do I have to show them? And he said, I look at it and I realize I don't have anything. It's all moments in time shared with people over the lost decades and blah, blah, blah. And I was sitting there and I was going, oh my gosh, that's so depressing. But then I thought, but if I write it down, it'll be there beyond me, right? And in some ways, you can reach more people through writing. That's my opinion anyways. Actors might beg to differ. But <laughs> do you have advice? Of course, is the, the just do it angle. But do you, do you have advice for aspiring writers who want to get their work out there and want to really hone that? Well, sure. Um, I'm a big believer in mentorship uh, training. And you would be surprised at how many people would love to mentor young people in what they do, whatever that might be. Why don't you tell us when is the show playing the third color? Where is it playing? When is it playing? All that stuff. Okay, so it's playing at a theater that I have, a, I like to think, a rich history with and a, a place that I, it's dear to my heart. It's Prairie Theater Exchange. It's downtown in Portage Place. It's on the third floor. If you get off the north elevator, you hang a right, you'll see it. Um, the show runs from October 2nd to the 20th, so pretty soon. And if you want more information, because there's different show times, I know there's matinees on some days, etc., etc., go to their website, www.pte.mb.ca. Ian Ross, the brilliant mind behind the upcoming The Third Color at Prairie Theatre Exchange. Thank you so much for joining me. Thanks, man. Miigwech. Up next on Because Radio, renowned soprano Renee Fleming performed at the Centennial Concert Hall last week, presented by the Winnipeg Symphony Orchestra, as the opening night to their 2019-2020 season. During her time in Winnipeg, she also delivered her presentation called Music and the Mind, in which she partners with local researchers and neuroscientists to share their findings and information on the positive effects music can have on our brains and overall health and well-being, along with stories about the life-changing positive effects of music. Prior to the discussion, I spoke with one of the presenters, neurosurgeon scientist Dr. Dimitri Serlaitis, to learn more about how the dynamics of music can regulate the frequencies of our brains and how that research could provide the groundwork for treating conditions like epilepsy. It's a fascinating conversation, and it's coming up next on Because Radio. Welcome back to Because Radio. Robert Zerg here with you today, and I am now joined by Dr. Dimitri Serletis. He is an epilepsy and pediatric neurosurgeon scientist at the Winnipeg Children's Hospital and the Health Sciences Center in Manitoba, as well as an associate professor in the section of neurosurgery at the University of Manitoba. Dr. Serletis, thank you so much for joining me today. Oh, thank you so much for interviewing with me today. 
tell our listeners a little bit about your work and what you do. My day-to-day job consists of uh, essentially focusing on neurosurgery, and with that I mean in particular pediatrics and epilepsy. As a neurosurgeon, you are exposed to conditions that affect the brain and the spinal cord, and my particular focus is on the brain itself. And we treat children at our center with all kinds of conditions ranging from trauma and traumatic injuries, brain tumors, epilepsy, of course, and we'll talk a little more about that, and other conditions there as well. And I'm also lucky to be the program director for our residency program, so that allows for education and teaching uh, uh, concomitant to the clinical work that I do. One element of that education is the Music in the Mind seminar in partnership with the Winnipeg Symphony Orchestra. What sort of effects does music have on the brain? It's a very big question to ask, but I'll try and sum it down here in a few words. Um, we, We know that music is a powerful force. It's hard to describe the emotions that one feels when you listen to a nice piece or you hear a wonderful performance, for example. What we know, though, is that there are dynamics to music that somehow parallel some of the dynamics seen in the brain. And we're just now learning about some of these aspects of the brain itself from a neuroengineering standpoint. I was lucky during my residency to complete a PhD in biomedical engineering and electrophysiology. And as you get more and more into some of these, they're rather mathematical and physics-based techniques that allow you to study the actual signal architecture in the brain's signals. And some have now started to replicate that in music as well. And so I'll pick, for example, something called 1 over F noise, which is a well-known phenomenon in the sciences. Lately, there have been some very interesting papers coming out showing that different composers have a different level of 1 over F noise in their compositions. And in fact, that level of noise can be used to study, for example, how predictable one of these compositions might be as compared to one that's towards more of the random spectrum, in other words. Something like ragtime music, Scott Joplin, even Mozart and Chopin were on that sort of end of the stream when you look at some of these papers, as opposed to looking at someone like Beethoven, who's at the other end, where it's rather predictable. This is what the mathematics tells us. And one point I I want to impress for the listeners is we're not trying to take away from the beauty of music and the appreciation, but there are actually, uh, there's another level to this. The impact of listening to music has now started to be documented that it can affect and suppress seizures, for example, in patients with epilepsy. So Mozart has a very famous composition uh, in D major for two hands. This is K448, as it's known. And it has been studied now over the last five years or so in rodent models and in humans as well, showing, in fact, that there is a suppression of epileptic seizures in those subjects who are exposed to it. It's not very long-lasting. It lasts for minutes to an hour, perhaps longer. But there is that tells us that there's something in that signal architecture that when a patient is listening to it, it actually can help perhaps regulate or restore some of that function that's lost in a patient's brain themselves. And, and just to take one step further, epilepsy itself is a condition of recurrent seizures. Something happens to the electrical activity in the brain that suddenly synchronizes towards the catastrophic types of seizure events that we see on TV and you know, in our patients, certainly in the hospital. And so those are the kinds of things that we're exploring as we look at those signals between how they are recorded in the brain and whether we can modulate them 
and take something from music that does seem to, in fact, do that. It tells us that music is healthy for the brain. In terms of next steps, I mean, there are people who are now working on this, labs, in other words, that are working towards developing a brain stimulator. So ultimately, this is the medium that would deliver some sort of a reparative pulse or a signal or a corrective factor mathematically to restore abnormal brain dynamics to a more normal state. That's amazing. So like you said, people feel good when they listen to a song that they like, but we don't really think about those frequencies in our own minds and and how that really goes with it. It's more of an emotional response. So it's interesting that there's actually something with the composition that affects that. Yes, exactly. And, and there's something to be said about, you know, mindfulness techniques and meditation and other practices that have really caught on in this day and age. And those have also been shown to have some effect on how the brain's waves are regulated. So I, I look at the brain's activity as, as an epilepsy surgeon. I'm often recording seizures from patients, for example. But the way I describe it to my patients is that there is a rhythm there that is somewhat like the music of the brain. And when there's something that affects it and it moves towards a seizure event, is there something there that we can anticipate and perhaps correct before it actually happens? And these practices of you know certain musical uh, compositions that have a benefit or mindfulness techniques, these are things that are now showing some beneficial effects. The question is to dissect out what exactly is happening there, and that may have some implications for understanding the brain's networks and its activity. We've alluded to this a little bit in talking about different composers, but I'm wondering if you found anything in terms of different genres. That's a great question, and that's something that I think the future will tell us is, as this research moves forward. There was one paper in preparing for this talk with Miss Fleming I came across that did classify out different musical composition types, at least. So within classical music, scherzos and mazurkas and sonatas and so on, based again on that 1 over F noise property. And this is just one smart, that one small step towards understanding. But it's very interesting to note that they could classify the pieces based on some of the internal noise structure, the, the signal architecture that is in these compositions. Is there scientific data in terms of the difference between someone who enjoys music on a more passive level, they enjoy listening, versus someone who is creative and is actively involved in creating their own music? The way I can answer that is just drawing on our empirical experiences. We treat many patients, obviously, with surgery for epilepsy, and that surgery takes a great deal of workup, and it includes recording the EEG activity, the electrical activity, and multiple brain scans. And our scanners have become very impressive these days. We're able to capture multiple networks that are activated with language and speech, with motor function, and even musical appreciation and abilities. So one of our latest cases, a young adult that we treated several months ago, she um, had a lesion that resided within the networks of her brain that service her musical ability to play piano specifically. So as part of her workup, before we made a surgical plan, we actually had her in a scanner for six hours. This is a functional MRI test that allows you to actually parcelate out the different features of what is involved in playing a piece of music or memory recall or sight reading, for example. And she was wonderful. She participated in all of this and we generated beautiful maps. And with that information, I was able to pick a trajectory to get to this rather deep lesion and remove it. 
this is important to say that in that workup, though, multiple regions of the brain are activated. It's not just one side. It can even cross to the other side. So there's a lot more that's involved there than we know and can understand. But we're just starting to see glimmers of that now with our recording and our imaging. So we know that there are multiple networks that are activated and not just the frontal lobe and the temporal lobe, but deeper structures in the brain as well. In what way does music impact childhood development? So we're just learning about what music can do for the brain and even the developing brain, as you said. This is an exciting field of research, and it is what inspires us. For example, we have a wonderful music therapy program where children and patients in our hospital are exposed to music. So neonates, for example, who have been exposed to music have been shown to actually perform better down the road at certain cognitive tasks. Premature babies who are born early, in other words, before term, who are subjected to different types of music, classical music tends to be what the literature focuses on, they tend to do better than their peers who have not been exposed to music. These are randomized trials, these are controlled studies that have actually looked at this. It's still a field that's in its infancy because, again, we don't really know what music does to the brain, but we are now starting to see some signatures that we can track and we can record and look at and measure, in fact. And some of these involve very detailed neuropsychiatric analyses and so on, uh, looking at cognitive outcomes. But the, uh, as you said, the bottom line is that the scientific community supports music as helpful for brain development and maturation. And we also talked a little bit about the mindfulness and how music can contribute to positive mental health. And I'm wondering if you, if you have any data that can explain how music can make those positive impacts on one's mental health. Uh, what we know from, you know, on the, on the clinical side, uh, I treat not just children, but I do have adult patients as well with epilepsy. And uh, we're a big team here and we do evaluate patients for all of these issues, including mental health. There is a strong link. It's not just our experience. It's been well published between epilepsy and other mental health disorders, including depression, anxiety, uh, you know, bipolar and schizophrenia and many of these other conditions. Music seems to help in these aspects, but again, we don't really know why. But it is interesting to note that a lot of the beautiful musical compositions we have come from patients who had epilepsy. For example, Chopin was thought to have epilepsy. In the art world, Vincent van Gogh was thought to have epilepsy, looking back. So there is creativity and genius hidden there that we just don't understand what exactly is happening with um, the networks that, yes, they cause seizures, but they're also a little bit different in allowing for this extra wonderful creativity that we now appreciate hundreds of years later. So with the presentation of music and the mind, what are some of the key points that you want to focus on and what's one of the major things that you want people to take away from the seminar? Uh, that's, that's a great question. So we were approached uh, by Miss Fleming's team to participate on this and I'm grateful for um, that opportunity to showcase a little bit of what we do here. Essentially what I'd like to do, what I'm focusing my talk on is some of my research findings in looking at brain dynamics in epilepsy and what we've extracted from there that may help us anticipate seizures. What has been done in music and dynamics similarly to compare and contrast and see if there are lessons to take away from that that could be used for therapeutic purposes to restore 
healthy brain activity. And then the last third is talking about our epilepsy surgery program. And this is something that I would really like our community to know about. We, uh, we have just now developed a, an initiative where we have the means with an, an epilepsy monitoring unit to treat patients with epilepsy in Manitoba. And uh, these are pediatric patients for now, and we're working on the means to support adult uh, epilepsy surgery as well. And so over the last year or so, we've made remarkable strides towards offering a new service, which in itself is a clinical service, of course, but also opens up the door to research opportunities of the sort that will allow us to study brain dynamics, the effects of music in the brain in pediatric and adult patients, and move forwards from there. I would really like to use this as a sort of a launch pad to move towards a research program of that sort, which we've started, but uh, hopefully we'll catch fire in the near future here. Before we sign off, is there anything you'd like to add that I haven't asked about? The common thread throughout all this is the beauty and enjoyment of music, and I admire Ms. Fleming for the program she has put together. This is uh, one of many stops on her tour, and she takes the time, and this is a high-level performer now. Words don't do justice to her portfolio, who still appreciates that there is a link between music and the mind and the brain. And on the clinical side, we see a lot of the brain in the mind. And I really appreciate the opportunity to link it to music because it's something that is understated. And we do need to put it into focus and move forwards with this from a research standpoint, from a clinical standpoint, and so on. So um, thank you very much for the opportunity to chat here as well. No problem. Thank you so much for speaking with me. I appreciate it. Thank you so much to Dr. Sirlaitis, and a special thanks to the Winnipeg Symphony Orchestra for coordinating our discussion. And to learn more about the work of Dr. Sirlaitis, as well as information on music in the mind, you can visit manitobaneurosurgery.com. Again, that's manitobaneurosurgery.com, and click on the News and Events page. Thanks, Robert. Up next, I've been highlighting impact makers in our community as part of our Winnipeg Impact Makers segment. This week's Winnipeg Impact Makers, Janine Tuga and Darcy Adam, work to increase access to education and holistic and expressive arts therapy through a game with archetypes. Welcome back to Because Radio. I'm Sunny Pomolo. As you all know, Manitoba is home to some of the most giving people in the country. To share those stories, I'm going around the city to speak with impact makers in Winnipeg. This week, I'm with Darcy Adam, founder and director of the Winnipeg Holistic Expressive Arts Therapy Institute, otherwise known as WEAT, and Jeanine Tuga, renowned local writer, puppeteer, and creator of the therapeutic game, Playing with Archetypes, Fairy Tales, Our Tales. Before we get started, Darcy, I would love to hear your because. Tell us about your journey and how Wheat Institute came to be. My grandmother was an artist, and so I learned early on the value of looking at art in detail and really appreciating art. When I was 17, a friend of mine, her mother, took us to San Francisco to a conference called The Healing Power of Laughter and Play. We had an amazing experience working with drama therapists, art therapists, and healers. And in that experience, I really felt like that was my calling, and that's really what I wanted to do. But it was hugely expensive to train in that area in the U.S. I would have needed to sell a house to do something like that. So it was really impossible at that time. 
So I went on in my career, became an educator, drama and English teacher, and eventually I ended up working at a place called New Directions with the TERF program for girls who've been traumatized and exploited through work in prostitution. And what I found in that experience was it was the art that made such a huge impact in giving them a voice and helping them to tell their stories while still being able to maintain their calm. And they really got connected with the art making and were able to have a stronger voice. So that was when I did my art therapy diploma. It had been so many years later after a journey through education and becoming a guidance counselor. And then I ended up becoming both an art therapist and an expressive arts therapist. I knew that it was still very expensive to receive training. So I offered a pilot program at the University of Winnipeg in 2014 and it was very well received and that basically evolved into Wheat Institute so we began with an affiliation with the University of Winnipeg where students can do half of their post-baccalaureate diploma in education through Wheat Institute and they'll get a transcript with courses that go towards their certification as guidance counselors or resource teachers And the feedback we had has been really phenomenal from educators and uh, also therapists who want to add the arts into their toolkit. And so we're the only school on the Canadian Plains and in the Shield that are offering diploma programs in art therapy and expressive arts where people can actually register so that they can become an art therapist or an expressive arts therapist, in addition to offering a certificate program, which is more of a tools in your toolkit where you might already have a profession such as being a guidance counselor, but you want to be able to offer those opportunities to kids. And that might look something like offering drumming circles. We've had great success collaborating with the Indigenous community to offer those more culturally significant opportunities for kids. So we've had 30 kids meeting over the lunch hour doing Indigenous drumming and just having a super powerful experience. So those are the kinds of opportunities that teachers would then be able to offer to their students. That's definitely amazing. Why do you say it's important to provide local art and expressive art therapy training right here in the prairies? For many people, they have families, they have other obligations in their own community. So I wanted to make it available here. And then also I find in smaller communities such as Sioux Lookout, where we also have a program, it just may not be a possibility to go away. So another thing that WEAT is offering now is something we're calling Bring Your Own Cohort, where we will take a whole program to your community. And so it's not just about healing the individual, it can be about healing the community. So oftentimes in smaller communities, there may be a rink, but there may not necessarily be an opportunity for people to make art. So for more creative folks, this gives an opportunity to create things such as an art hive, which one of our graduates created in a small town in Saskatchewan and ended up receiving $25,000 grant to provide this service for this very small community to create healing for those community members and to really bring the community together in a new way. So we believe that this is healing not only for individuals, but also for groups and communities. What types of programming do you actually offer? How many classes and educators do you have at the Weed Institute as well? Yeah, so we do offer the certificate program affiliated with the University of Winnipeg. And our cohorts tend to be around six to eight students, so they're small groups of people. 
and that's a one-year program where the students would receive training in the therapeutic use of the arts, and then they would also have a practicum experience where they're learning how to apply that in their workplace. It's highly experiential and highly practical in terms of what you're going to do. And then we also offer programs in art therapy and expressive arts therapy. So art therapy would be more the visual use of art, and expressive arts would be multimodal. So we teach poetry, drama, movement, and it's the mingling of the different art processes for a higher impact. And we're now offering those programs in Saskatchewan, just south of Saskatoon. And then we also do the outreach with the smaller certificate programs that we can take to small communities. And Sioux Lookout was our first experience with that. We really value a connection to the land. We try to find spaces that are in beautiful locations. So we're at the St. Norbert Art Centre on the LaSalle. And we're at a retreat centre just south of Saskatoon called Ancient Spirals. And it's a beautiful location on the South Saskatchewan. We love the land-based connection, and that's helped us to connect in terms of the Indigenous community and that worldview, those values. I really try to keep a connection there and to foster those values. We have a number of Indigenous teachers, and we also have Cree language course just for $10 an hour. It's a 10-week course that's going to go on over four semesters. As we already know, sometimes access to education can be an issue. To ease the financial burden on students, you've developed two scholarships through the Winnipeg Foundation. Why was it important for we to have scholarships through the foundation? Finance is a critical question for people when they're making a decision about their education. It was a critical question for me when I was deciding how to do this. So it's always been a question and also a concern. The groups that we felt we most wanted to increase accessibility for were artists and also Indigenous people. So we have a scholarship for artists that's named after my grandmother, B. Anderson, and we have a second scholarship named after Elder Harry Bone, who is an Indigenous elder, an educator, and a real leader in Uh, increasing accessibility to education and increasing the appropriateness of education for Indigenous people. So those are the two areas that we've focused on in terms of our giving. You've created a special fundraiser to support artists and Indigenous students to further their training in the therapeutic use of the arts. What is extra special about this fundraiser is the inclusion of the therapeutic game, Playing with Archetypes, Fairy Tales, Our Tales. And joining us today is Janine Tuga, uh, the creator of the game. Thanks for joining us. Thank you. So can you share with us uh, what the therapeutic game is and how it works? I've always enjoyed games. And I've studied um, Virginia Satir, who's a pioneer of family therapy's uh, therapeutic approach for the past 30 years. So I thought I would combine games and this approach. And um, I've been collecting these little red rose porcelain figurines for the past 10 years. I have about 2,000 of them. So it was kind of an easy connection to say, okay, let's use these figurines in a game, especially since they represent archetypes or universal truths. Everybody's run away from something like the little gingerbread man, Mm -hmm. and uh, everyone's fallen off some wall like Humpty Dumpty, and everyone's been innocent like Red Riding Hood. And so they all represent universal kinds of truths. So combining those with a game in which the participant, first of all, says what they want, because Satira is one of the first 
therapist who asks people, what do you want instead of what's your problem? She's gone from the difficulty to moving right to the solution. And that was pretty revolutionary when she started doing that. Now it's maybe a little bit more common, but what the gift is, when someone gives $200 to a wheat scholarship through the Winnipeg Foundation, they receive a gift of this kit, which has the 24 porcelain figurines in it, booklet with at least 12 games. If you're a therapist, you can play it with a client. If you're a parent, you can play it with a child. And if you're someone who just is into self-growth, you can play it with yourself. (laughs) (laughs) Even if you don't know what all the fairy tales or nursery rhymes are, there are cards that give you the story of that with questions at the back of the card. I've played it with some of my co-students in the WEAT program, and uh, it went amazingly well. And everyone was kind of blown out of the water. And, and somebody said, you have to make this into a kit. I want to buy one. And after I saw what impact wheat courses had had on me, I thought, I want to do what I can to get other people to be able to afford to come to these courses. So, and this was one of the ways I thought, I'll assemble these kits. I'll put these games together. And... I went over to Darcy and I said, I want to donate uh, 60 kits to you so that you can give them as a gift to people who would give donations for your scholarships. Sometimes you buy a chocolate bar, you go to a dinner, but it doesn't have that much to do with the actual fund that you're giving to, right? And to me, this is like a double whammy in the sense that there's money going to the Wheat Institute, plus there's a tool that you can use with clients. Clearly, it made an impression on you for you wanting to give back. What did you get from Wheat yourself? The list is too long to mention, but I would say two obvious things for me. Feeling welcome to be as as I was in the courses, that's a big deal when somebody says, I'm not a person who can dance, or I'm not a person who can draw, or I'm not a person who can whatever. It's like it's a judgment-free zone. So you just draw the way you draw, and there's no expectations of a result. You just move the way you move. And so that was a big deal for me at the beginning. And then in the course of the years, just last year, I had a very close friend who died. And being part of the wheat weekends helped me mourn and helped me go through that experience in a very holistic and very comforting way. Like I was sold and I thought if I could give more than this, I would. And this is a good beginning. (laughs) (laughs) Darcy, why was it important for you to collaborate with Janine on this? To see this beautiful gift box of these treasures and to have my own identification with these little red rose tea treasures that I used to get my when my grandma opened her red rose tea box and I would see these little figurines and to have this all come together as a powerful tool for healing and to use the symbology of these small items was really quite a miracle to me I must say the whole aspect of it and Janine's generosity and creating the cards with the questions and her ability to bring her own experience with Virginia Satir's work so profoundly into this experience which can be shared with so many in such a beautiful way I was really, really moved to be a part of this. For those looking to learn more about the Wheat Institute and this therapeutic game, where can they go? And is there anything else that you would like to add? We do have a website, and that's just www.wheatinstitute.com, where we have information about all of our programs. And in terms of the giving, 
Donations can be made directly to the Winnipeg Foundation, but they must be made by check in order to receive the game. If the donation to Winnipeg Foundation is made online, you would get an automatic tax-deductible receipt, but you would not receive the game. You can also send an e-transfer to Wheat or a check to Wheat made out to Winnipeg Foundation and just note in the line that this is for the fundraiser, and we can receive that $200 as well. Of course, we're always grateful for donations. We do have a $10,000 sum that we need to make for the uh, awards to become in perpetuity. So we're very excited at the possibilities of this and certainly hope to increase the number of students that can benefit. Thanks to Darcy and Jenin for sharing their story of impact. If you or anyone you know is making an impact in our city, message us on social media by searching the Winnipeg Foundation at WPGFDN or reach out and call us at 204-944-9474, extension 360. Again, that's 204-944-9474, extension 360. We'd love to hear about it. This is Sunny Pomolo, and you're listening to Because Radio. Thanks, Sunny. Up next, Because and Effect host Nolan Bicknell will be joining us momentarily to share some highlights from his most recent conversation with Tara Whistle, Associate Artistic Director at Royal Winnipeg Ballet, coming up next on Because Radio. Welcome back to Because Radio. Robert Zirk here with you today, and we are now joined in studio by the host of the Because and Effect podcast, Nolan Bicknell. Hi, thanks for having me. So welcome back to the show. We have you here just about every week to talk about the latest guest on Because and Effect, which is a weekly podcast from the Winnipeg Foundation where Nolan talks to guests about the causes they care about and the effects that those causes have had on their lives. So this week's guest is the Associate Artistic Director of the Royal Winnipeg Ballet, Tara Whistle. What was that conversation like? It was great. Um, Tara was very cool, very nice, very uh, interesting. She is a master of her craft. Um, as you mentioned, she's the Associate Artistic Director at RWB, but she's also was their principal dancer, is considered a ballet master, which is a very cool title, and has been dancing since she was just three years old. So it was a privilege to learn about what it takes to be a master at such a difficult art form. Ballet really is a, a very difficult art form. Um, did she elaborate on what kind of work that ballet dancers have to put in in order to get to that level? Well, as children, like three years old, they would only do, you know, one hour a week or whatever. But once you start to kind of get into becoming or wanting to become a professional, she said it's five or six hours a day, six days a week, two sessions. And they start young, like I said. So she started when she was three and they have kids taking classes um, that are that young as well. But to be to really be the best, Tara says you essentially have to be obsessed with dance. And I think that's how it has to be, because it's so difficult as a young person to Put your life into or dedicate so much time to training so if you don't have that innate love of it it you just won't be able to do the training so Tara wanted to be a dancer her whole life? She did, but more so because she wanted to play characters and tell stories and create those emotional responses rather than actual the, the physicality of it all. I don't think there was ever a moment that I was like, oh I'm gonna uh, I'm gonna make it. I always thought I was gonna make it. Mm. I just, because I knew that I had to tell stories. I just, because I, that's what I loved about dance. It wasn't necessarily the physicality of it. I loved being a character. I loved, uh, even when I was young, I would dance in the basement and pretend I was somebody else and have an audience. And 
Uh, so it was kind of like I just, even at a young age, I knew that I had to do this. Did I, I never thought that I would go as far as I did, though. Um, and I don't think there's ever a moment where you're like, oh, I've, I've made it. Because even when you're at the top of your game, you're still learning and you're still pushing through and, you're, and it's very competitive. It must be quite a challenge to convey stories without necessarily being able to use your words. That's a big, yeah, that, exactly. That's a big sort of issue that I had with it because obviously we, you and I, and people in communications often use our words to, to sort of tell stories. But Tara, you know, said it's almost like a benefit to not have to use your words because the audience can interpret the story and interpret the dance moves in different ways. And it's a lot, a lot less rigid than, you know, the spoken word or the written word. Everyone feels emotion, right? So when you're watching a dancer um, create emotion with their body, I think the audience feels it. So it's different from a word, from words, because the, the, the emotion created in dance can be interpreted. And words sometimes are so concrete that um, if people feel like they need to understand the words, whereas movement, and I always say this to people, you don't need to understand it. You just need to let it wash over you and you feel whatever you feel. RWB's next season kicks off in October. Are there any noteworthy performances coming up? So the 2019-2020 season is their 80-year anniversary season. So there's a ton of great shows and performances all up on their website. Uh, there's even one that they're bringing back that deals with residential schools and reconciliation that Tara told me about. I'm going to say one of the most important ballets that we have done in the past, and we're bringing it back um, to take it to Mexico to the Cervantino Festival cool. in Guanajuato. Uh, it's Going Home Star, which is a ballet that the Truth and Reconciliation Commission um, worked with us to do. Wow. Um, uh, Going Home Star is about uh, the story of Indian residential schools wow. and how we can move forward in reconciliation. So that was a giant project that we worked with the Indigenous community with um, that really impacted my di different thoughts and something that I mean if I told you we were doing a ballet about that um, but what happened uh, it was at that time it wasn't as controversial but um, what it did is it got people to talk mm -hmm. so I like to ask this question of each of your conversations what was your biggest takeaway from talking with Tara Burt Whistle from RWB I think what I would say is her passion for the arts was undeniable but partially because of sort of the current state of the world and because we need the arts and we need beauty to remind us some of the positive emotions that we uh, that we used to feel or still hope to feel someday. But Tara really said that the arts is more important than ever. And I think we forget, especially this day and age, that it's very important. Beauty and uh, creativity, um, having a voice in that, in that, any, that, any genre of the arts is very important and I would like to believe that we're moving in a direction where we are bringing beauty back. Thank you so much Nolan for being here today. If you'd like to listen to this episode or any other episode of Because and Effect, there are now 15 episodes. Yes sir. Full yeah. episodes. This is the 15th. So 15 great conversations that you can find at becauseandeffect.org. Again, the website is becauseandeffect.org.
that's a wrap for today's episode of Because Radio. Thank you very much for listening, and thank you to all of our guests who joined us today. Because Radio is produced by the Winnipeg Foundation in partnership with 93.7 CJNU-FM. Our Because Radio theme music, Call of the North, was written and performed by Micah Ehrenberg. You can find more of his music at micaehrenberg.com. If you'd like to listen to previous episodes or subscribe to our podcast, please visit becauseradio.org. Again, that's becauseradio.org. If you have any feedback about today's show, ideas for stories, or Winnipeg Impact Makers, please give us a call at 204-944-9474, extension 360, or you can email us at becauseradio at wpgfdn.org. And you can also follow the Winnipeg Foundation on social media at WPGFDN on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. I'm Robert Zirk, signing off for Because Radio. And I'm Sonny Pomolo. Thank you so much for listening, and we'll see you next week. Have a great weekend.